0: This episode of Tinfall Swans is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Food & Wine's Tinfoil Swans, a weekly podcast serving up inspiring, touching, hilarious, revealing conversations with some of the biggest names in the food and beverage world, and we hope giving you plenty to savor even after the episode is over. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Executive Features Editor at Food & Wine, and I am eternally fascinated by how successful creative people become, well, themselves. What are the moments, influences, missteps pep talks, and decisions, big and small, that got them where they are today. Picture Enrique Olvera in your mind, and there is a good chance that he's moving across it in a chef's table glow, making the mole and tostadas and other dishes that made his flagship Mexico City restaurant Pujol into a global destination and landed it on Food & Wine's global tastemakers list for 10 best international restaurants. He's expanded his reach into New York, with Cosme in 2014, and Atla in 2017, and then Los Angeles in 2020 with Damien. And this year, he is adding even more to the roster with Atla in Venice Beach and Tacos Atla in Brooklyn. Olvera is a chef's chef. The biggest names in the culinary world plan trips to Mexico City, specifically around their Pujol reservations, and they flock to his restaurants on America's coast because he's got so much to teach them about the beauty and bounty of a cuisine that has long been undervalued outside of his country of origin. He has been at this for a long time now. Pujol opened in 2000 and it hasn't always been easy, but the two things he has never doubted are Mexican cuisine and the people who devote their lives to making it. I sat down with Enrique Olvera to delve into what keeps him going, how he shares this motivation and passion and energy with the people he trusts to keep such a big empire alive, and about the beauty of taking some time to sweat, in a good way. (laughs) Welcome to Season 1, Episode 8 of Tinfoil Swans, Enrique Olvera and the Lesson of the Apple Trees. I'm so excited to meet you, even if it's virtually like this. I've eaten at your restaurants and you've brought me joy.
1: Thank you, Kat. I appreciate that. Great to meet you as well.
0: I am curious to know, because I sort of know where you are now, who were you when you were 10 years old?
1: Fortunately, I had a really happy childhood. I was raised in Mexico City. Just a normal kid going to school in a large city. My mom loved cooking, so I was also fortunate in that way. I remember coming back from school, like really hungry and she would always have something delicious to eat. And I always enjoyed also being with her in the kitchen. Ever since I remember, I loved how she would just like dance around the kitchen and how the ingredients transformed. So I was fortunate to have a really nice childhood.
0: That's really lovely. And growing up, I know my family didn't go out to restaurants all that much. We mostly ate at home or I would eat at friend's house. What did that look like for you growing up? Where did you usually eat?
1: So most of our meals were also at home. I remember Wednesdays we used to go to my grandparents' house on my mom's side. My grandmother is from a state called Tabasco, so she cooked from that region. I remember specifically a puchero that was amazing which is kind of like a pot-au-feu, like a beef stew with chayote, squash, and carrots, and always a uh, salsa that I, that I used to love, which is the amashito chile, which is a very small chile, also from that region, just with salt and lime. And that was our normal weekdays. And then on the weekends, we also went to my family's houses, so an aunt or my other grandparents. And some weekends, we used to go to restaurants. My father loves Italian food, so sometimes... He took us to La Pergola, which was a very traditional Italian restaurant here in Mexico city, especially when I was younger. And then by age 12, we moved to a small town called Querétaro, which is two hours away north from Mexico city. Over there, the restaurant industry was very limited. It was a city of 400,000 people. So restaurants used to be very casual and we used to go to a seafood restaurant called Vallenato on the weekends just to eat like octopus cocktail and fish with garlic, very simple, but also delicious. So I also have fun memories of that.
0: That's really gorgeous. And how old were you at that point when you moved?
1: We moved in 1987. So I was 11 when we moved to Querétaro and I stayed there until I was 17. So on my second year of high school we moved back to Mexico City. Like I said Querétaro was a small city so there wasn't a fine dining scene in Querétaro at the time. There used to be one a little bit more elevated restaurant called Josecho which we did go on a couple of occasions just to celebrate something special. And when I moved back to Mexico City that's when I started going a little bit more to I don't know if it's fine dining restaurant but like a little bit more refined restaurants. So I was not aware of the fine dining culture until I actually went to school at the CIA. I enrolled in 1995 at the CIA in Hyde Park in New York, and I basically started cooking because I loved the process. I was not aware of the chef world back then in Mexico, so there were not celebrity chefs, maybe Monica Patino and Paulino Cruz, which had a couple of TV shows in the state channel, Canal Once. But to me, everything like of the fine dining world and chefs was not part of my upbringing, no, it was, it was more about searing a piece of meat in a saute pan than the glamour of cooking.
0: This is something that's come up over and over with people who I've been talking to no matter where they're from. They're talking about their perception of chefs was less formed by going out to restaurants than what they saw on TV or maybe got cookbooks or magazines. And for a lot of the people I spoke with, it was maybe Jacques Pepin, Julia Child, or whatever was playing where they were. So you mentioned a couple of the people who you saw. Did it ever occur to you that you would be one of those people on the screen showing people how to cook?
1: No, of course not. (laughs) Even when I graduated from school, I remember applying to a job at the Hotel Marriott in Boston and just not even dreaming that this could be possible. I was more like trying to just become a better cook. And of course, I had the dream of one day opening my own place. I think that did come up when I was in school, because when I was at the CIA, I started to be more aware of the chef world. Back then, there was a huge movement on New american cuisine. So Larry Forione and Alice Waters were already people that we looked up to. And then by the time I graduated, I remember the French laundry being like literally the Mecca of food for most of the cooks that went to school at the CIA. So that To me, it was probably my first big star in terms of people that I admired. And also, I was fortunate that when I was in school, I had the opportunity to go to a couple of really nice restaurants in New York City. So the first time I ate at a fine dining establishment was Le Bernardin. I still go there.
0: Oh, that's a heck of a way to start. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I still go there a couple of times a year. I do remember that meal and the profound impact that it had on my career because when I ate there, I remember thinking, this is what I want to do in terms of cooking. No, the emotion that I felt by eating and how that closeness to perfection was something that I wanted to strive for. So, obviously, the flavors now I remember having a mussel souffle and a fish with a rare blanc and a poached pear tart for dessert. So, I still remember those flavors vividly in my mouth. But more than the flavors, to me, what was really inspiring was how impeccable the execution was and how food can actually make you feel like a better person. I remember walking out of the restaurant and just being like literally high from the food.
0: I have had that same experience. When you're in there, it just feels like the rest of the world fades away and you were in the care of people. I think in particular, there was the moment when I had my purse and they brought the little stool to put my purse on <laughs> and to think that somebody cared to that level. It was so special. But what years were you at CIA?
1: So I was in CIA from 95 to 99. I took the bachelor's degree. So I did the cooking part, which was a couple of years and came back to Mexico to do my internship in the Maximes de Paris, which used to have a location in Mexico City. So I was here for six months and then went back to do the bachelor's degree and graduated in 99. After graduation, they gave a work permit for six months, which I used to go to the Everest Room in Chicago. My father was back then working for an American company, and that company was based in Chicago. So he had an apartment over there, and he was gracefully enough to let me stay with him. So I moved to Chicago and- uh,
0: the Jean Joho.
1: <laughs> yeah, with Chad <John> Jojo. <laughs>
0: ah, I love that man.
1: Yeah, it was also a beautiful experience. I think that the Everest gave me also a lot of discipline and I still have really good memories of that place. Obviously, it was my first job. So there was a lot of stress. I was a little slow when I started. So I remember like having to get there like super early because other cooks were ready in a couple of hours and it would take me four hours instead of two hours just to get my mise en place ready. But I think that experience helped me a lot in understanding also like hard work and being responsible of your station.
0: It is really an intense kitchen. I just remember I met Chef Joho when I was eating alone at his restaurant in Las Vegas. having I took myself out to lunch and it felt like a very special thing. And he came over and said, you know, I always come over and talk to solo diners and ask them what the heck they're doing here. But it was just such a beautiful moment of service. And he brought me his cookbook and I've just thought the world of him (laughs) ever since. And that's such a special thing. But moreover, it made me feel like I belonged in a lovely restaurant. So when you went to La Bernadan that first time, did you feel like, yes, this is the place for me that I want to be? Did you feel welcome? Did you feel like this was a world you wanted to be part of?
1: Yeah. I, I also remember walking in without a jacket, <laughs> which was embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> and they led me a jacket, which was actually a little large on me, but immediately they made us feel welcome. It was the first time my dad and I went to a restaurant like that. So... To us, it was a little intimidating, but obviously they made it feel so comfortable that by the time we were in the main course, we almost forgot, like you said, about the rest of the world. And we were just immersed in that beautiful scenery, you know, because it's not only the food, but everything around it, the room, the gracefulness of the waitstaff and everything that surrounds the restaurant.
0: What were your feelings there? You walk in there, it is this temple of at that point, French cuisine and things like that. How did you feel showing up there?
1: I remember the first time I walked into the school, the first thing I felt was a sense of belonging. Good. Back then in Mexico, when I told most of my friends that I wanted to be a chef, everybody was really intrigued because nobody was a chef in Mexico back then. Nobody chose that as a career path. It was cooking chose you, you didn't choose cooking. (laughs) And I remember walking in and just seeing so many people dressed in whites and feeling like, okay, I'm not the weirdo anymore. No, there's so <laughs> many people like me and that have the same interest. Most people in Mexico wouldn't go. No, most people in Mexico back then were either engineers or lawyers or architects. But I did feel immediately that sense of belonging. And then I also felt like it was now in high school, I was not a problem child, but I was not exceptional at school. No, I was basically doing the minimum effort to get my parents happy. And then when I walked into the CIA, I immediately became like a really good student, I was very interested in the craft. So to me, it also came very naturally. I, it felt like almost effortless. To be at the CIA, like just waking up and going through class every morning felt like I was in a dream instead of in college.
0: I think of you as such a joyful champion of Mexico and Mexican food and flavors and ingredients and people. Were you seeing that celebrated at the time in fine dining or in your education?
1: It had started to be more open. So there were a few lessons that showed Mexican dishes. What I do remember is because there was this huge movement on American cuisine, I always felt inside of me that this can be done in Mexico because we have such a rich culture and such depth in our cuisine that it seemed natural that it would happen. And I was fortunate enough to move to Mexico right after working in Chicago. And to be completely honest, when we started cooking at Bujol, most of the techniques were French because that's what I learned. That's what I knew. We did use some Mexican ingredients, but we were more concerned about creativity than actually Rising Mexican cooking, and it took us probably four or five years to realize that was something that we can contribute to, creating a new style of Mexican cooking instead of just having a good restaurant where you could eat deliciously.
0: I don't this from many people talking about specifically Mexican cooking and specifically coming from traditions that there's maybe something culturally, I don't know what it is, that maybe undervalues it even internally. And I'm wondering if you have run across that, if that's something you've had to solve in yourself, or if it's something that you've always wanted to champion and had to find the confidence for, where have you found yourself in that?
1: I think in Mexico what happened is that most of us that grew in the seventies and eighties, most of the restaurants were European or even Japanese. So it was not even an option. It's not that we didn't cherish it. We didn't even think about it. For us, Mexican food was something that happened in markets, in fondas or at home. For people that were fortunate to grow in a family that cooked Mexican or people that grew up in Oaxaca or in smaller cities where regional cuisines are still very powerful and present in homes. In Mexico City, there was like a more contemporary cooking at home. So my mom used to make fish Milanese and, no, like steak with tomatoes. And it was not as stereotypically Mexican as people might expect from the cooking. When I came back to Mexico, chefs started to have a bigger role in the restaurant industry. People were more familiar with the chefs that were behind the kitchens because when I was younger, for example, I worked in a very celebrated restaurant called Hacienda de los Morales. Few people knew who the chef was. So the chef figure in Mexico was not as bright as it was already in the US. And I think that is what changed after we opened Puyol in in 2000. I think the industry started getting more robust. And as the industry started getting more robust, we understood that in Mexican cooking, there was a lot to be worked at. And it was also the time of change and creativity in cuisine where, you know, Ferran Adria and the European chefs started to work on molecular gastronomy. And there was a big rush in, not only in Mexico, but in other countries in Latin America, because it gave us artistic freedom. I think that was the biggest contribution of Ferran was not technique in the Kitchen, I think his biggest contribution is that we felt free to create whatever we wanted.
0: Yeah, I think that's incredibly relevant because I know that he's said along the way, the experimentation and the trying and the getting people out of their comfort zones and trying something new, sometimes more important than something actually being delicious in a way that people have understood before. And that's a very artistic decision to sit in discomfort when being in hospitality is rooted in comforts and pleasure. And then it's a risk to challenge people with things. I'd love to know your approach to that.
1: I remember when I was at the CIA, I thought being a good cook meant following recipes to the team and being able to execute them perfectly. That was being a good cook. And then I think what Ferran became such a huge figure in the industry, being a good cook started to look more like being cultured and being creative, thinking outside of the box and making people taste something that they've never tasted before, instead of just tasting over and over the same thing. So to me that license was super important because in a way it also gave me license to start playing with mexican food and that's where i felt more comfortable as soon as we started playing with mexican food I also, I think I started showing more of myself. I was not raised like in a traditional home in the country, in Mexico. So I also had to learn. I have a couple of really good mentors, Ricardo Muñoz Urita being my biggest mentor. Now he, I met him in a food Congress around 2003 and he immediately became a good friend. And he told me like, you're an exceptional chef and you should try cooking more with Mexican traditions, not only with Mexican ingredients. And I took it seriously and he was very generous with his knowledge and with his time. And he taught me a lot of things that I know. And we talked a lot too about how we can work in a respectful, but also in a contemporary manner with Mexican food. And I will always be grateful to him because of that.
0: We will be back with more from Enrique Olvera after the break. This episode of Tenfold Swans from Food & Wine is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Tinfoil Swans. Today, I'm chatting with Enrique Olvera. You had talked about how being in La Down made you feel and all these other things and making food, moreover, making a restaurant that is more than the sum of what's on the plate, but is a full expression of vision and a collaborative vision that happens. At what point did you become confident that you would be able to pull off all the different facets of this? And who did you gut check this with?
1: I don't think you can never be like completely confident that you have it under you because restaurants are a little bit like theater where every day you have to prove yourself, it's not like you already like movies that you do it once and that it's there for eternity, you have to prove every day. I do think that by the time we moved locations from Puyol in 2016, we were really comfortable with how we were working in terms, not only of the format of the restaurant, but also the flavor profile that we wanted to proposed to our guests. So I think it, obviously, if I had worked more under other chefs, my career was not normal after I worked for that brief period in Chicago, I immediately opened Puyol. I opened Pujol when I was 24 years old, so I had very few experience and took me 16 years of having Puyol to be able to feel comfortable with what I was doing and not second-guessing myself all the time if we were doing the right thing.
0: Do you have an inner critic who is loud? And if so, do you listen to them?
1: Yeah, of course. Now (laughs) that I'm a little bit older, I'm still very critical of our work, but I'm also more patient. I think that's the biggest difference. Before I had an urge to change quickly, I now understand that good things take a longer time and that is a process and that we need to be a little bit more understanding that the process sometimes is not as fast as we would like it to be
0: there's a lot of pressure that comes with opening something. I mean, 24 is incredibly young to be doing much of anything. (laughs) And to open a restaurant like that, what were the feelings? (laughs) I mean, it's a bold, amazing thing to do. And talk to me about the process of deciding to do this at 24.
1: It was a little bit destiny because I was working in Chicago and then sometimes I had some days off and a friend of my dad came to visit. And I told my dad, like, I'll cook lunch for you guys. And he really enjoyed what I made for them. And he told me I have this very small space in Mexico City and I've always wanted to like a very casual restaurant with a bar. And why don't you partner with me? I'll raise all the money and then you will be the chef and I'll give you like a small part of the restaurant. So I said yes, because I was also, my visa was almost over and it was December of 99. It was the change of the century. So I wanted to be back in Mexico for that. And after a few months, he told me like, oh, I screwed up and I don't have enough money to open the restaurant. And I was already in Mexico. (laughs) And it's like, okay, I'm already here. I can't go back to the U.S. to work because I didn't have any more months left on my work permit. And I said to myself, I need to get a business going. I didn't even think about getting a job. Yeah, so I cooked. Another friend of my father said like, oh, we're opening a restaurant. We already have the investor group, like you should join us. And I joined them. They wanted to open something super big. And I said like, I don't feel comfortable managing such a big restaurant. If you guys want to do something smaller, I'll be up to it. And we found this space in Polaco, which is the original location of Puyol, which used to be an Argentinian restaurant, which are very popular here in Mexico. And it was small enough. It's like 2000 square foot. We had 45 chairs. No, it felt to me at that point manageable, which I don't know why I was so confident (laughs) that I could do some, pull up something like this. Obviously, the first year we lost money, we weren't losing that much money because there was six of us in the restaurant. The floor manager, I met him when I was in Maxims during my internship. He was the cashier and there was a couple of waiters and it was me, three cooks and a dishwasher. So even though sometimes maybe we sell like $100 in one day, we weren't losing that much money, so we were able to stay afloat for a long time. And the second year we started breaking even, the third year we paid the losses from the first year, no, and it was until the fourth year that we were actually not even, I wouldn't say profitable in a good way, but just being able to cover everything. And then in 2007, I don't know what happened, that it boomed. I can't say it was one particular thing. There was like a series of events that year that put us in the radar for a lot of the press here in Mexico and that made chefs come visit from other parts of the world. I can't point at a very specific moment. It was just like that year I do remember being a, a great year for us.
0: I was going to get to this because the pressures of all of a sudden having all these eyes on you. When I think of you, I think of you as a chef's chef because you're one of the people who, when I talk to any of my chef friends internationally, they're going to go, if they're in Mexico, they're going to go and see you. And you have that lingua franca with chefs from all over the place. I imagine that's gratifying, but it must come with pressure as well. What was that feeling like when you start to notice that other people in your industry are making a point of coming in?
1: I think it's a combination of pressure, but also a combination of joy. Now, I remember when Michelle Velas came to the restaurant, to me, that was one of the happiest days in the restaurant history. You no, know? And it was some pressure. Obviously, you want to show the best that you can at that moment of yourself and of the team and of your cooking. But it was also so nice to feed somebody that you admire, I think that is one of the greatest joys in a restaurant. Obviously when celebrities pop in, no, it's nice and no, it feels good to have them, but having somebody that you admire professionally, I think has this component of real joy and not only the responsibility.
0: I was actually yelling. I was being passionate recently about Michelle Brault because somebody was trying to assert to me that this whole wave of pastries that are on Instagram that have flower petals and things sprinkled all over them. Oh, there's this new thing. I'm like, have you not heard of Gargayou? Like it, I've become the cranky older person, I think generally, but people need to know. I think it's a very Gen X place to be. I don't know if you're Gen X, but I am. And it's feeling it more and more every day.
1: Yeah, but that's so true in cooking. When you feel like you're doing something new, you always realize there's nothing that new. I remember when I was in advanced cooking at the CIA, they asked us to create our own recipe. And I remember doing like a barley soup with saffron and all I thought it was very creative. And then a few years later I found a very similar recipe in a medieval book. So it's <laughs> like not only was not new, it was super old. <laughs> so and I think that's something that we've also let go in the past few years in Puyo, like having that urge to create something new and just try to create something that is close to you, authentic in the sense that it comes from you. And it doesn't matter if it's new or not really, as long as it's delicious and it represents the way you approach cooking, I think that's good enough. For me now, at least.
0: And I know that you go out of your way to make experiences for people there. So it's not just what's on the plate, but because you know that it has become a draw, a destination. It feels like Mexico City for a very long time has been this incredible bastion of culture and art. And I know that your restaurant has become very much a part of that. And... How do you do that every day? Like, how do you feel that freshness and that beauty in making these moments for people who this might be the only time they're going to get to come? Because obviously you have locals, but then you're a destination as well. How do you do that on a daily basis?
1: When we moved locations from Puyol, that was also a big moment for us because we understood that we needed to create a new language for Mexican cooking. Before, in the original location of Puyol, it was very Eurocentric, tasting menu small courses to large courses, several kinds of proteins, no wine pairings. We were in that mode. And when we moved to Tennyson, to our new location, we said like, we need to figure out what a fine dining Mexican restaurant is and not what a fine dining European restaurant is that serves Mexican food. And that took, I wouldn't say a lot of work, but just a lot of reflection on what Mexican culture is. We wanted also to showcase the Mexico that I grew up in
0: the vocabulary of what Mexican fine dining is. I'm curious about how you developed that and who you gut check that with.
1: Yeah, so when we moved locations to Puyol we understood that we needed to create like our own language and our own format. And at that time I also started going to Japan. Often I discovered Japan and in Japan what I realized is that Japanese restaurants were not following European formats and they had their own formats. And we needed to do that in Mexico. So we stopped doing the large tasting menu formats. We focused on smaller menus. I did not want to have several proteins in the menu because I felt that digestively was not something that was desirable for me. It was too heavy and it had like a strong cost to your body. So we wanted to keep a menu that was the same protein, so we had a fish menu and then we had a vegetarian menu, instead of having small portions to large portions, like also even out the portion sizes, instead of Having 14 courses, we started doing six courses and obviously by then we were only using Mexican ingredients and Mexican techniques, but we also understood that we shouldn't be that traditional. Being Mexican also meant being open to new ingredients because things like cilantro, which seems very Mexican, is obviously from Asia. So just to give an example that everybody can relate to. So if there was broccoli being grown in Xochimilco, in the Chinampas in Mexico, why couldn't you make at a of broccoli. And if that broccoli grew in Mexico, it was Mexican. So we also stopped being like so orthodox about traditional Mexican food instead started playing around more with ingredients that with techniques. And I also wanted the restaurant to be warm and cheerful, which I think it's a huge part of Mexican culture. It's not that we didn't take it seriously. We just understood that we didn't need to follow all the protocols of fine dining in order for us to have a restaurant that aspired to excellence and aspired to be a restaurant that executed with great degree of precision
0: well it's one thing to be able to execute this in one location in one city but that's not what you're doing you've translated that vision to other cities and i believe you're going to be doing even more of this what is that process like, to remain true to yourself and your core ideals, but have it be in other places, in other formats?
1: I'm very fortunate that really talented people want to work with us and they have had a huge impact on the restaurant. When we started growing in terms of restaurant locations, I understood that my role was not to be the chef anymore, but actually be a mentor that was empowering chefs and having strong chefs de cuisine. I do not run the restaurant kitchens anymore. Since 2010, there were so many chefs de cuisine that have passed through Cuyol and through Cosme, so to me, I'm very grateful to them because they always leave a part of them in the kitchens and they are the ones that run the restaurants. Now, it's obvious to say no, but it's not me that it's doing the running of the kitchens and it's them. So that's how you do it. You have talented people you give them not only the empowerment of the kitchen, but I think it's also important to give them the recognition they deserve and having them feel like the restaurant is theirs and not mine. I'm more like a soundboard to them because I've gone through most of the problems that they go through every day. No, I can relate and I sometimes don't even give advice. It's just listening. That is important. To me, cooking is still about sharing who you are, and also giving love and joy to people. Cariño, which is the word that we use in Spanish. It is a way of showing people that you love them and that you care for them. And I think that is also why chefs have this very friendly and warm quality to them. It's because you're always giving, either through cooking or just with your energy. So I think if you don't lose that from your mind, you never forget that that's why you started cooking. I think you'll have a successful career and you'll be happy because you know you're doing something great for people.
0: And what would you tell that 24-year-old you who is opening a restaurant?
1: (laughs) Maybe wait till you're 27. (laughs) It worked out, you know.
0: I was going to say, you're doing pretty well here.
1: But by chance, I think, I mean, hard work, of course, but also chance. I was very lucky that I was in Mexico at this point in time. I recognized that there is a factor of luck. And I think there is also like, you have to take chances. And fortunately enough, I was really good at taking chances when I was younger. Now I'm a little bit more hesitant. But back then I was not afraid of anything. And I think that also helped.
0: I miss that version of myself (laughs) sometimes. Maybe I'll take a chance tonight, do something. (laughs) I'll do the same. Do you feel comfortable talking about what you have coming up next? because it's pretty exciting.
1: We're opening a second location of Atla in Venice Beach. I don't know why it feels really close to me. It almost feels like a second home, and we're really excited to be opening in Venice. I spend a lot of time there. When I'm in LA, I like being close to the ocean, maybe because we don't have (laughs) oceans here in Mexico City. And then for me personally, I think in a really good moment, I feel very serene with this past few years I've been trying to build a team and a company instead of the traditional chef structure, which was more like a monarchy. We have now a corporate structure that I feel really comfortable with. I'm taking a step a little bit back, powering people. I'm going to be 48 years old next year. So it's been 24 years since I opened Puyola. I'm in love with the industry. Obviously, COVID was very, very rough for everybody that worked in the industry. Maybe next year we'll be able to recover that energy and that passion and that joyfulness that being a cook meant. I remember when I enrolled at the CIA, I thought like, I don't want to be this boring person that has a normal job and cooking was a little bit like for people that were joyful and a little crazy and happy and fun. No, and I miss that energy. And I think that has drifted a little bit away from our industry. And I think it's super important that we bring it back because it does show in the restaurants and it does show in the food and it does show in how people feel when they walk into your restaurant. It's not only about being professional and precise. It's also about being warm and welcoming and, and happy.
0: I remember eating an at Atla and at my table was Pete Wells and Bill Addison. And I just remember how happy we all were. It was a really, really special thing. And I just keep thinking with all this, you're somebody's Michelle Braun now. Like when you come into their restaurants, imagine their stomach seizing up, like, oh my gosh, she's here. What would you say to them in that moment? I
1: remember when I was in the CIA in January, the waiter was really, really nervous. And I gave him like a nice clap in the back. It's like, don't worry, man, it's going to be okay. Maybe it's something I have to talk with my psychologist, but I, <laughs> I still don't feel that. I feel pretty normal.
0: You're my second guest who we have talked about our therapists, so I wish everybody in the industry would would go and seek therapy. I think it's a very good and healthy thing to do.
1: It's personal hygiene is the most important.
0: It's so good. What do you do to take care of yourself at the end of a busy, intense day?
1: Just spend time with the people that I love and do a little bit more of the things that I like. I love playing tennis. That literally takes a lot of my stress, just like hitting a ball and sweating a little bit. Eating better. It's crazy that we cooks that sometimes eat so bad, oh, no?
0: you You eat like crap <laughs> every chef yeah, I know. Every cook I know.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to be more healthy and be more aware. Like, don't chase the rabbit all day. <laughs>
0: It'll get you. It really will. <laughs> I am curious because, you know, the name of the podcast is Tinfoil Swans. What does that mean to you? Do you, What's a tinfoil swan moment to you?
1: The first thing that comes to mind is takeaway. I don't know why. There's this phrase that Andoni, the chef from Ugaris, once told me that an apple tree can only produce apples. So the takeaway is you can only be true to your nature. If you're a cook, you have to be true to that.
0: Okay, you just delivered exactly what I was hoping... That the title of this podcast would do. I want people to have those takeaways, and people interpret it different ways. But you just <laughs> thank you for that being perfect.
1: just <laughs> I didn't practice, I sir.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Enrique Olvera. Be sure to follow Tinfoil Swans on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we would love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave a review, we would really appreciate it. And you can also find us online at foodandwine.com tinfoil tinfoilswans. When I say us, I mean our incredible production team. Lottie LeMarie, Jennifer Del Sol, Michael Classic, Amelia Schwartz, Ashley Day, Sean Flynn and Hunter Lewis. Make sure to come back next week for my conversation with Gregory Gorday. Take care of yourself until then.